1: We do trust that you will able to stay with us for the entire program tonight, and I do trust that we'll able to impart some spiritual enlightenment and encouragement to you as you stay with us for the entire program tonight. Well, the topics we'll be covering tonight on the program is from a listener who have sent in several questions for us to answer, and tonight again, as we did last week, we'll be trying to answer some of those questions. Tonight, we'll be dealing with what baptize for the dead means, and also, what are the identifying marks of a cult? And we'll be dealing with the first one, which is a question from a verse in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 29, where the Apostle Paul speaks of baptizing for the dead. And the question is, would you pl- please explain what baptizing for the dead means? Uh, I'd like to read the passage um, before we start to do an explanation or exposition of the passage.
2: Uh, it's actually First Corinthians chapter fifteen, verse twenty-nine, and it reads as follows: It says, "Else what shall they do which are baptized for the dead, if the dead rise not at all? Why are they then baptized for the dead?" I would like to begin by saying that this is a very obscure and obtuse passage, and there are a lot of interpretational problems because it has some arcane expressions uh, within the text. Uh, I have attempted to examine several commentaries and um, did some research to try to answer this question as best as I can. Uh, I found that um, Walbert and Zuck in their... New Knowledge Commentary. Uh, This is a commentary written by the staff of Dallas Theological Seminary. Uh, They have said that uh, there are over 200 explanations given to this verse if you were to do the exhaustive research. Uh, John MacArthur, as well, in his book on 1 Corinthians, mentions that there are about uh, 19 to 20 explanations that he has seen uh, in connection with this text. So we're dealing with a text that has some uh, hermeneutical problems, and it is not an easy text to explain because the language is so uh, arcane. Um, I would like to answer the question, but before I answer it, I would just like to give some explanations uh, as to what the Bible teaches generally in regards to both interpretation and uh, the matter of uh, baptism. One of the great principles of interpretation is that you never allow an obscure passage uh, to direct or control a passage that is clear. And this is one of those obscure passages, and there are other passages in the Bible that makes it very clear what is involved in baptism. So we must not allow a passage that we're not too sure what it means to, to guide us in terms of interpreting what other Bible passages that are very, very clear explain to us. The other matter is that uh, you cannot build a doctrine on an obscure passage. This is one of the great marks of a cult. They're always looking for some weird uh, passage or something that seemed to be different and unique. They give a particular spin to it, uh, and they embrace that, and it becomes a major plank of their teaching. So we got to be very careful that we don't do those two things. I try to interpret the general tenor of scripture by an obscure passage, and then secondly. Uh, not trying to build a doctrine on a particular passage that uh, there needs to be there's some uncertainty about the third thing I would like to say is that there's no doubt when you study the scriptures that it never teaches anywhere that there can be such thing as a vicarious or proxy baptism for anybody after they've di- died um, This is a unusual teaching there's only one group that I know that has embraced this particular teaching and is currently using it, that's the Mormons. In their temples, they literally have people baptized for those who are dead uh, believing that by being baptized by proxy in some miraculous way, it will help the person uh, who has already died outside the faith or who died without being baptized that somehow they'll be miraculously redeemed and saved. Uh, The Bible nowhere uh, teaches that. Uh, the Bible nowhere teaches that a person who has died can be either saved or helped in any way by another person, baptism, or acting on their behalf. Similarly, uh, it's, it's useless praying for somebody who has already died. Nobody's prayer on earth can affect the destiny of somebody who's already died. And The Bible makes it abundantly clear that the decisions we make and the choices we make in this life, uh, and after we die, our destiny is sealed. Uh, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27 says, Clearly, it's appointed not a man once to die, but after this, the judgment. So, having said that, um, I need now to try to explain uh, the passage as best as I can, and I hope that um, I will be able to somehow guide you in an understanding of how to interpret this passage. However, one last thing quickly. Uh, The biblical teaching on uh, baptism is very straightforward when you go to Scripture. Baptism is an act of obedience, of faith, uh, where we proclaim our identity with Christ and with His Church. Uh, It has nothing to do with salvation in terms that it cannot save anybody. Nobody is ever saved by being baptized. Uh, We do not believe in baptismal regeneration, uh, we think that that is not only a false doctrine it 's a myth. it is not found anywhere in scripture, and therefore um, the understanding of the biblical doctrine of baptism helps us with this interpretation. Now there are two things that are required before a person can be baptized in the Bible. two things: number one, he must repent, and number two, he must believe. When a person repent and believe, then he 's baptized. That is the biblical doctrine. Uh, of baptism, so any interpretation of this passage that goes contrary to that is wrong because you cannot you interpret the obscure by that which is clear and, and that is why we need to come to some understanding of what this passage uh, means now uh, in this passage in Corinthians chapter fifteen and verse twenty nine the apostle Paul is dealing with the doctrine of the resurrection. Uh, Paul talks about how he had proclaimed the resurrection of Christ in the gospel. Then he talks about the historicity of it, in that he's brought evidence in this particular chapter to prove that Christ raised from the dead. And he calls several witnesses to the stand, including Peter and and, and, uh, James. He calls 500 people who had seen our Lord at one time, and then he includes himself. So he's dealing with the resurrection, and he's trying to, prove its historicity by drawing attention to the evidence. And then in the final part of Corinthians chapter 15 the Apostle Paul is using arguments uh, why uh, we uh, arguments that give evidence that the the belief in the resurrection is authentic for a Christian. So this is the last section where he's dealing with that matter trying to bring arguments that will support the doctrine of the resurrection. And this is where this passage comes in. Uh, So Paul um, mentioned in verse, asked the question, else what shall they do which are baptized for the dead? If the dead rise not, why are they then baptized for the dead? So the question is, what is this baptism for the dead? Now there are four interpretations I would like to offer you, and I will tell you which I believe is the the best of these four, but I think it is worthwhile um, suggesting to you those uh, interpretations of this passage. Number one, There is a belief and an interpretation that um, some scholars, including Leon Morris, who wrote the book of 1 Corinthians in the Tyndale series of New Testament commentaries, um, he has suggested that this might have been a false uh, cultic practice that entered the Corinthian church uh, and that was being practiced by some of the Corinthians. Now, remember that some of these Corinthians did not even believe in the resurrection. Paul says in Corinthians chapter fifteen, verse twelve, "If we say there's a resurrection, how say some among you that there's no resurrection?" So, this is a church that is clearly embracing heretical teaching and going contrary to the apostolic doctrine. And uh, Leon Morris and and some others believe that uh, because of the influence of Greek. Um, philosophy and Greek ideas uh, this particular doctrine like many other doctrines you find in the New Testament uh, began to creep into the church and uh, when you go to the book of Colossians for example when Paul has to do with the, the Gnosticism uh, that had uh, begun to infiltrate the church you'll begin to see that it is not uncommon that we the New Testament church already false doctrine and false teaching and false practice were already beginning to creep into the, the church and Paul warns about this by the way in Acts chapter 20 that this would happen after he departed But so he, he believes that um, this by the way he, he uh, Sam Leon Morris in his commentary mentions that in a place called Elusius north of Corinth there was a pagan religion that practiced this baptism for the dead uh, he mentions in his commentary that uh, Homer in his uh, hymn to Demeter uh, made reference to this practice of uh, baptism for the dead um, in this cultic group. So one of the interpretations is that this is a thing that entered the Corinthian church, a false teaching. And what Paul is trying to say is that, listen, if you really don't believe that the dead is going to be raised, how are you practicing this, this particular matter? It's inconsistent for you to be saying that the dead is not going to be raised, which the Corinthians believe. Some of them believe in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 12. Paul said there were some among them that did not believe in the resurrection. So Paul is saying, if you are claiming that there's no resurrection for the dead, then how come you've got this uh, cultic practice where you are actually baptizing for the dead? So Paul is saying, uh, you are very inconsistent uh, if you really believe that the the dead raised not no, that 's one of the interpretations very uh esoteric uh interpretation one that I uh, find little um acceptance for, but I thought I should mention it to you uh, because it is one of the suggested interpretations uh, one of the things that uh, uh Mr. Morris points out and some others have pointed out that Paul uses the third person uh pronoun he says else what shall they do which are baptized? Not that what shall we do that are baptized. So they is referring to this particular group in the Corinthian church who had embraced this um, cultic practice and was uh, had brought it into the church. So uh, that is one of the interpretations that is is, is given in regards to um, this particular uh, uh, verse. Now, I think that there are three possible solutions to this problem. And it all hinges on the word for. Uh, The word for that is used there in the passage, uh, else what shall they do which are baptized for the dead, uh, is the Greek word hooper. And it has a dozen or more meaning or shades of meaning depending on the grammatical structure of the sentence and also depending on the context of the passage. It could mean, for example, for, it could mean above, it could mean across, it could mean beyond, it can mean in reference to, it can mean concerning, it can mean on the behalf of, it can also mean instead of or in place of, and it can also mean for the realization of or for the hope of. Now let's explain uh, how we got these different interpretations. So let me then begin to take the word Hooper and apply some of these different meanings of this word, and see how it will help us to understand what what is being said in this passage. So let's take the first one, um, because of. And let's put it in place of the word uh, for, in, in verse number 29. Let's read it. Else what shall they do which are baptized because of the dead? Uh, and then he goes on to say, if the dead rise not, why are they then baptized? And here is the interpretation, because of the dead. Uh, it is believed that it possibly means because of the testimony of the dead. So here's a person who has come to faith in Jesus Christ because the person who has died had been influential in in bringing that person to faith. His witness, his testimony uh, was, was, was um, ef- um, effective in bringing this person to, fi- to, fi- to faith in Christ. Now, by that definition... Uh what Paul is here saying or what is being written here is what Paul will be saying is else what will they do which are baptized because of the dead? in other words, if the dead rise not, why is this person who has come to faith in Jesus Christ now being baptized? It doesn't make any sense if the dead uh rise not. So so Paul is just uh saying in this passage uh in this passage here that else what shall they do which are baptized Because of the dead. So if there is no resurrection, uh, there is no reason for a person now to be baptized. That is why uh, Paul is used. That is one um, explanation in this uh, particular passage. So when it talks here about the, uh, in verse number 29, else what shall they do which are baptized for the dead, Uh, Paul is referring to the, the person. Who is being baptized? This person is being baptized because he has been influenced by the person who is dead, and that is why he's he's not being baptized for the dead, but he's being baptized because of the testimony of the dead. See, that is the 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 interpretation that is given to this particular passage. The other interpretation uh, that is given is to take the word "hooper" to mean in place of. So what Paul would be saying here is. Uh, If you're claiming that the dead rise not, Paul is saying then, else what will they do that are, are baptized in place of the dead? So what Paul is now suggesting is that the person that is being baptized is now replacing the person that is dead. He's come to faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Now he is following the man who is dead in terms of baptism. But Paul's argument is this. If the dead rise not, what's the sense of this person now who's come to faith in Christ? What's the use of this person now being baptized to fill in the role with this man that was dead? It's gone. Uh, In other words, what's the use of conversion if the dead rise not? That's the second um, possible interpretation here of this particular passage. But then the one that I find favor with is to take the word um, um, hooper, and to use the meaning of it, which means for the realization or in the hope of. Now let me show you how that word Hooper is used in that sense, for the realization of or in the hope of. If you have your Bible, you turn with me to Philippians chapter 2, and verse 3, 13. You'll see how Paul uses that word Hooper there in the passage. Let me give you a chance to look at it in your Bibles, Philippians chapter 2, verse 13. Uh, in that passage, Paul writes, For it is God which worketh In you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Now, see the word of there? That word of really is the same word that we have here, for. The same word, hooper. And so if we take that uh, particular passage and uh, we read it and we replace the word of with for, it should read, For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. So, what is Paul saying here? Uh, Paul is saying that God works in the believer, uh, moves the will of the believer, um, and God is at work to realize his good pleasure in the believer. Uh, in other words, to, to work to realize in the hope of achieving his good pleasure in the believer. Now, question, what is the good pleasure that God wants to realize in the believer by working in the believer's life? Well, the answer to that question is Luke chapter 12 and verse 32. Where uh, uh, we are told in Luke chapter 12 and verse 32, it's the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. So what Paul is saying in Philippians chapter 2 and verse number 13 is that is God's at work both in you to will and to do for the purpose of accomplishing His good pleasure in you. Now take that Uh, take that now and apply it to the passage we have in um, Corinthians chapter 15 and verse uh, 29. We go back to that passage, and uh, let me just find it again. Here it is. Else what shall they do which are baptized for the dead if the dead raise not? Why are they then baptized for the dead? So if we take this particular passage now, and we apply it, the same meaning that we gave for the realization of. Otherwise, what will they do who are baptized for the realization of the hope of the dead? Now, what is the hope of the dead? The hope of the dead is resurrection. So what Paul is saying here now is that if the dead rise not, then why is that person being baptized, because the reason why he's being baptized is that he wants to realize the hope of the dead, which is resurrection. That is what I believe is the correct interpretation that Paul is trying to get across here in this particular passage. He is simply saying in this passage that if there is no resurrection for the dead, it would not make sense for a person being baptized. And the reason why he's being baptized is because his hope Is to is to realize, uh, in hope of realizing from the dead. uh, Let me just uh, correct that for just a moment. In other words, the apostle Paul is hoping that they will do when they get baptized. The person who is being baptized is hoping to realize uh, from the dead, and what he is hoping to realize from the dead is resurrection. So I believe that this particular passage uh, is emphasizing that the person is being baptized because he hopes to realize uh, the resurrection from the dead. And that is what it really means in this particular passage. Now, let me just say this as well. However, whatever interpretation you give to this passage, it will not be satisfactory to most people because uh, you've got to play some mental gymnastics. You've got to use some semantics in order to get this verse so so that it does not contradict what the Bible teaches so clearly. We know that there's no salvation in baptism. We know that there's no such thing as vicarious baptism for anybody who is dead. That is clearly not a biblical teaching. So the only way we can interpret that is to take the particular word and try to get it fit into the clear teaching of the Bible with respect to um, baptism and respect to the dead. So to to sum up what I'm saying to you, uh, I believe the best interpretation of this passage is that Paul is suggesting when the person is being baptized, he's being baptized because he has a hope of what uh, the dead hopes for. And what the dead hopes for is resurrection. That is what I believe is this particular passage. I hope I haven't confused you. And I hope that uh, in some measure, if you need greater clarity, maybe we can talk on the phone uh, to make this explanation uh, far more clear
1: for you, Pastor Murphy. The next question the listener wrote: What are the identifying marks of a cult? And so the question I would like to ask you: What is a cult? Whatever definition we give of a
2: cult um, this evening is is not going to be universally agreed on uh, because there's so many variants in terms of how you define a cult. However, there are two common definitions that I think are very helpful. One is that the cult is a sect or a group of uh, dissenting people uh, from an established parent group. So it is an established parent religious group, and this particular group either breaks away or descends from that. The, the definition that I prefer uh, as a pastor is that a you know, cult is a religious group who follows teachings and practices that deviate significantly from historic Christianity and from the central doctrines of Scripture. So two things are key to uh, defining a cult in this definition, that they uh, deviate from the historic position of Christianity and that they also move away from what is called the cardinal or fundamental or central doctrines of the Christian faith. Uh, That is what I think um, is an appropriate definition in my my way of thinking in regards to uh, defining a cult.
1: The next question I would like to ask you, what are the marks of a cult? Uh,
2: There are several distinctive traits or or marks of cults, and uh, let me just hurriedly mention some of those to you. First of all, um, every cult, with very few exceptions, has some extra biblical source of authority. There is the denial of the sole authority of Scripture, and they have some source of revelation that goes beyond the tenets of Scripture. Uh, their attitude towards scripture is a reckless subjectivism where they decide what part of the Bible they want to believe and which part they are going to discard. They arbitrarily manipulate uh, biblical teaching to fit into their cultic beliefs. They view the Bible as either corrupt or inadequate or outdated or insufficient, that it needs to be upgraded. And the Narmie would see their cultic writings or source book as an update on. Um, obscure uh, biblical teaching. This is true of, uh, for example, the JW. They have um, Charles T. Russell's writings and Judge Rutherford's writings. Uh, the Mormons, of course, got Joseph Smith's uh, Book of Mormons. The Seventh-day Adventists uh, are known for, even in their Bible, to cross-reference Ellen G. White's writings. A lot of them, by the way, which are plagiarized and um, and uh, a lot of claims that she made in connection with the that the Lord revealed these things to her. Uh, and there is a book on the market that you can purchase on Amazon called The White Lie, and it will lay forth to you in categories and in columns her writings and the writing the books that she plagiarized from um, Christian Science. Uh, May, Mary Baker uh, Eddie uh, her book Health and Science the Key to Keep the Scriptures. So one of the marks of a cult is that they always have some extra biblical source of authority uh, that they go outside the pale of Scripture and they deny the final authority of Scripture. Uh, a second trait and a second mark is, and this by hat is the most basic characteristic of a cult. And that is, they deny the justification of the believer by faith and faith alone. Most cults, Uh, require, in addition to faith, the addition of some other factor, whether it be some kind of works, some kind of baptism. Um, But you will always find that when it comes to cultic doctrine, they have a distaste for the biblical doctrine of justification by faith alone. So that's the second mark. The third one is the uh, defective Christology that they teach. Uh, there's a devaluation of Christ Uh, maybe not a complete denial uh, but a partial denial sometimes of his person and his work and his nature Uh, so they have a false view of Christ and they never give to him the preeminence that is rightfully due to him as uh, God the Son Uh, so the devaluation of Christ Uh, a fourth mark of the cult is that they're considering themselves the exclusive community of the saved they alone are God's people Uh, There's no salvation outside the group. There are the true saints of the latter day. And uh, all outside their pale are lost and damned. Uh, So they always see themselves as the exclusive community of the saved. A fifth mark would be the fact that they are raised up by God to restore some lost truth. All other groups have apostatized and lost uh, the true faith and now God is restoring the true faith or the true truth that uh, was formerly lost by the organized church, and now they see themselves as the one that God is calling to restore uh, this particular truth that was lost uh, to the church. Let me give you a sixth um, um, mark of a cult. That would be the group has a central role in eschatology. And what I mean by that, the group is convinced that they have come into existence at a final stage in history to fill a gap to establish God's kingdom. Uh, it sees itself as the center of God's activity in the present and for the future. And at the final climax of history, the group will be given some special favor by God because of their faithfulness. And so they play an essential role when it comes to the future. Uh, there are the uh, the central objects of, of that God is using uh, within the final days of of, uh, this world. And then number seven, and this is cardinal, by the way, as well, the denial of Israel's future, that she has a future role in God's prophetic program. You will hardly find a cult that has a role for Israel in the future. Uh, They themselves claim that they are Israel and they have replaced Israel. Uh, One comes to mind, the 144,000 of the Jews uh, one comes to mind with the the the, the Mormons having the, the the twelve tribes of Israel, uh, but they 're always displacing Israel, and they have somehow miraculously uh, taken over all the promises and all the role that israel's supposed to play in the future. They now play uh, play that role it 's called displacement theology, where Israel is actually displaced in god 's program. Uh, let me give you an eighth one, and that 's what I call an imbalance of doctrinal emphasis. Uh, they lay claim to some unique doctrinal belief, and it becomes like a mantra for them. Uh, they have these unique teachings that they emphasize. The Seventh-day Adventists would emphasize what is called the investigative judgment. The uh, The JW will talk about the 144,000 witnesses. And of course, the Mormons will also it will emphasize. There have the unique doctrine of baptism for the dead. So they baptize by proxy for those who were not baptized. And then number nine will be what I call a presumptuous messianic leader. There's always someone in the cult uh, who is somehow God's special voice for the times. He may be a guru. He may be an apostle. He might be a messiah of some kind. He may be a prophet. But he is God's special voice for the time. And um, um, anyone that challenges his authority um, somehow will be damned or somehow will not enter the kingdom or be excluded from God's people. But uh, he must not be challenged. He's uh, certainly God's spokesman for the time. And the tenth one I would mention quickly is the institutional dogmatism. What I mean by that is they will not tolerate any other position than their own. They are the fountain of truth, and the group has become the institution or the organization that's the voice of God. So they are now the conduit to which God speaks. I think those are ten of the common traits uh, that you will find uh, in, in those uh, who are cultic.
1: Pastor Murphy, why are cults growing so rapidly?
2: That's a phenomenon that um, concerns me, and I suppose it concerns every other thoughtful Christian, uh, because clearly there is an avalanche of, of cultic groups that are rising up on a fairly regular basis. My answer to that is whenever darkness begins to spread, the problem is with the light. There's something, some defect in the light. Now, the church and the Christian is the light of the world. So when the darkness uh, of cultism begins to take over, uh, it's because the light has failed to shine as it should. So to understand the growth of cults, we must understand, we must begin with the failure of the church. And I am not one that has a tendency to knock the church, but to be very realistic, if cultic teaching is uh, a kingdom of darkness, uh, the only way that darkness spread is where light is absent or uh, light is not functioning. So we have to we have to take some of the blame for the growth of um, the cultic movements, especially within the Caribbean Circle. Uh, the Church, I think, has failed in not mentoring its converts. We have produced converts, but we have not pr- produced disciples. One of the damning statistics that uh, should make every Christian think is that 90% of all cults were one-time Christians. So something has gone wrong. We haven't done the job that we should have done. And I think that one of the great failures is that we haven't spent enough time and invested enough time and effort in discipling people and mentoring people. And I think that is part of our failure. The other thing is that we have failed to really train people in the great doctrines of the Christian faith. You cannot recognize error unless you understand truth. And if the church does not uh, indoctrinate its its, its, uh, members uh, in the great doctrines of the faith, it is not surprising, therefore, that when the cult comes and he offers a doctrine that's even contrary to the fundamental doctrines of the Christian church, they easily, easily fall victim to it because they were not grounded in these doctrines. There was a time when the church would catechize um, members, and uh, today that is hardly ever done. And I think that that in itself has facilitated the spread of of, uh, the cults. The other thing I would say to you uh, as far as why the cults um, are spreading like this uh, as far as they fail the church is that the church has failed to really make a moral difference in the lives of its members. Uh, and that's why the cults have been able to capture so many people out of the church. There's such a low moral standard, uh, and people are looking for something that is different from what they see within the established church. And when they see that there is this low uh, vulgar morality, uh, they are not inclined to remain within the church. And the cult comes and offers them what they consider to be something better, something higher. And they aspire to something higher and the, the cult is able to influence them. And then number four, another one I'll is that I think we've actually failed to meet the deep needs of people. And two of the great, great needs of people are a sense of belonging. I wonder sometimes if people really feel that they belong to the church, they're really part of the, the, the church. And then the sense of the people looking for relationships. Uh, how many times in church that people go to church and as soon as church is over, everybody goes to his home. Uh, there's not the building of relationships within the body of Christ. The cults come around and they offer a family-like atmosphere. And that is an attraction for people who are looking for identity, looking for uh, relationships, looking for sense of belonging. And I think the church uh, inadvertently has perhaps um, encouraged the growth of cults by not meeting this particular need. And then I would like to add to you as well that the church has become apathetic when it comes to personal uh, soul winning and evangelism. Uh, The cults are growing, and they're growing because they are on an evangelistic trail. They are zealous for their doctrine, for their teaching, uh, for their founder. Uh, They are visiting, they're going house to house, door to door. They're having tent crusades. Uh, they are actually trying to go out to the people rather than expect to put a, a sign saying "Come to a church." Uh, uh, I think that the the and let me just say this the easiest way uh, to solve the, the 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 cult problem is we got to reach them first. The hardest thing to do is to unravel the mindset of a cult a person who's accepted a cult cultic doctrine. There's something about falsehood that has an affinity in the human mind. And so when people uh, turn away from Christianity and go into a cultic movement, it's very hard to, to to restore that person to a position within the Christian church. So if we are going to bring about some kind of growth uh, in the church and uh, prevent this uh, growth in, in, in cultic movement, we've got to be the first ones to reach people, and that can only be done by personal soul winning and evangelism. So I'm talking about, first of all, the failure. Let me mention, um, secondly, what I consider to be another reason why the cults are growing, and that's the breakdown of the family. Dr. Walter Martin observed that our generation is a generation without a sense of history. It is cut off from the past, it's alienated from the present, and it has a fragmented concept of the future. So the family traditions where family worship together Uh, Family went to church together. Family did things together. That is no longer a reality. Many cults uh, capitalize on this. They break down the family because they become the surrogate family for people. And that is an attraction for people who are looking uh, for relationships. The third one I would mention that has led to the spread of the cult is what I call the undermining of Christianity in the West. There's no doubt about it that Western democracies have been undermining the Christian faith and the Christian church for decades. The theological liberals in the 19th century out of Germany who started attacking the Bible, undermining Scripture, Uh, by undermining the Scripture, the Bible was now robbed of authority. And the cults are able to come in uh, and fill that void There was also the Darwin theory of evolution that came in and crept into the church so that, uh, again, um, it not only attacked on the Bible, but the attack on creation, the attack that there is a God. And This has been happening in the Western world where Christianity is supposed to be dominating. And then Freudian psychology has also been detrimental to the church in in, in several ways, by the way. Um, Because of that, Psychology, based on a false anthropology about man, man is no longer viewed as a sinner. Man is no longer viewed as responsible for sin. As a matter of fact, man is now a victim. Uh, so the the doctrine that used to think man was a sinner, man needed to be saved, man was accountable before God, psychology has replaced all of that by saying that we're all victims and we're not to be held responsible for our actions. That too was undermined and the Christian faith, because that has seeped into the Christian church. We can also talk about the sexual revolution of the 60s, the pill that enabled people to now engage in secular activity without having a child. That brought into the church havoc in terms of the immorality within the church and undermined Christian morality. And, of course, that led to people' the view of the church changing because it was not just the man in the world now that was engaging in secular activity, irresponsible secular activity, but now in the church because they could practice it without impregnation. And that destroyed uh, the morality of the church.
1: Pastor Murphy, we have a WhatsApp message, a question from St. Martin, and I would like to share it with you at this time. What do you think of a pastor who says that deacons need to be loyal to Him. You get that?
2: Yeah. I am not too sure of the angle that this person is coming from. Um, um, Our first loyalty is to God. Whether it be a deacon or pastor, um, our first loyalty is to God. There's no question about that. Um, That's our first loyalty. But there must be a sense in which, um, like, for example, I'm supposed to be loyal to God, but I'm also supposed to be loyal to my church. And when I mean loyal to my church, I mean I should attend the services, I should help support the ministries, I should engage in using my talents and my gifts to help in the um, expansion of that mission to go for that ministry. Similarly, I don't think it's improper uh, for a pastor to expect a deacon uh, who has been chosen a deacon to be loyal. But it depends on loyal in what sense uh, to the pastor. Uh, loyal in, in the sense that he can hold confidences because within a pastor with a pastor and deacons there are things that are exchanged and interchange. and I think that if a pastor shares something with a deacon uh, he should be loyal enough not to not to um, let that out of the bag as it were where it could become as though uh, the person is either slandering an individual or backbiting whatever it is so it all depends on what you mean by loyalty I do feel that we ought to be loyal to our leaders uh, for example, Joshua was loyal to Moses. see Caleb was loyal to Moses, Er was loyal to Moses, her was loyal to Moses, Aaron was loyal to Moses. so there's nothing. Timothy was loyal to Paul uh, so I, I don't see any problem with the, the 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 matter of loyalty, but if you mean blind loyalty no. now, that's another story altogether because my first loyalty is to God, not to my church, my first loyalty to God as a deacon. My first, his first loyalty to God and he should be loyal to the pastor as, so long as that pastor remains true to scripture and lives a morally upright life uh, then that loyalty is deserving but other than that uh, it's one of those tenuous things you've got to be very careful about. If you mean blind loyalty I would never endorse blind loyalty.
1: Pastor Murphy, as we continue our topic on cult it is said that Most people who join the cult are people from Bible-believing churches, and you have alluded to that. But it it is that people are more easily believe a lie than the truth, and is it we are not drilling our people in the basic doctrines of the Bible, and so when the cult come around, they just easily fall away. You want me to respond to that?
2: Uh, That is partially true. uh, I just there is, as I mentioned, an affinity in human nature to embrace error and falsehood. There's no doubt about that. Uh, the acceptance of truth, there is a repulse in human nature because man is depraved. Man is fallen, so uh, error always have a foothold uh, in the heart of man and its an inclination. But I don't think that is necessarily the problem. I really think that we have not done an adequate job in grounding people in the great doctrines of the Christian faith. When you have a cult who visits your home, and uh, he is so at home with Scripture, he can quote Scripture, he can quote passage. Now, he has been been honed, and he has been given uh, classes. Uh, He has been taught how to, uh, when objections come, how to respond to these objections. So he has been prepared to know how to respond. I am not too sure that we've done that in our churches in terms of um, and dealing with our people. So I do feel that we have failed in that regard, uh, not grounding people thoroughly in Scripture. I don't think the explanation is just simply that the cults come and they have a winsome personality and they're able to, to draw the person away from us. I do feel that um, it's something far more than that. But let, let me just quickly continue.
1: We have another question here from Antigua. It says, What category would you place someone who predicts the date and time of Christ's coming when Christ clearly states in Map 13:32, "But of that day and that hour knoweth no man, no, not the angels which are in heaven, neither the Son but the Father."
2: Several people have done that before, but that is sheer arrogance, religious arrogance. It, it has no place um, in a church. Um, our Lord has spoken to this matter again and again, and you, you've got the correct passage there. So when a person gets up and can set a date and tell you the time, you know one thing, that is false. That that person is not worthy of either being listened to or being followed. Uh, that is an arrogant uh, character who's assumed a role that is not does not belong to him and that is going contrary to Scripture. Let me get back to um, what he was saying quickly. So you would
1: categorize that person as a
2: false prophet? I, I would say it's either, uh, it's either willfully misled, he's an arrogant uh, teacher, and, uh, and clearly uh, he has an element of being false. Now, whether or not he's advocating the Lord's return and trying to draw people's attention to him as he's the last day of voice of God, uh, I am not too sure where the person is coming from. All I would say about a person who makes those kind of claims, he's not worthy of being followed, And clearly, he's going contrary to scripture and ought to be rebuked.
1: And Deuteronomy said, "Those who predict those kind of things, and they do come today, are to be stoned."
2: Well, we can't stone them today, but we can actually (laughs) we can actually (laughs) criticise them. Uh, And and by the way, there's a verse that is being used: "You should not." speak against the Lord's anointed. Well, when the Lord's anointed goes against Scripture, we have every authority to correct that person and bring that person in line with Scripture. So we must not blindly follow people because of who they are, what they claim to be. Our final authority is God's Word. That must be the thing that guides us in dealing with people, in dealing with leaders. Uh, That is the final authority.
1: Okay, Pastor, our time is quickly moving, so you have something to um, finish up, so go ahead with that.
2: Yeah, yeah, quickly, I was talking about the the why these cults are are going. I mentioned the problem with the church, that we must take full responsibility, and that we haven't uh, fulfilled certain functions. We talked about the breakdown of the home and the family. Uh, We talked about the undermining of Christianity in the West. Uh, uh, And then the other thing I would like to mention, that because Christianity broke down in the West, you now have the influx of Eastern religions and once Western societies rejected the Judeo-Christian roots and, uh, for secular humanism, uh, which could not satisfy the great longings of the human heart, the Eastern form of religion now came in and filled that void that was there. And uh, so man, uh, the Western to the East, and when these mystical teachings started now, here's a problem that developed. All these mystical Eastern cults stress subjective experiences and inner feelings. So what happened now, uh, we have a society where everybody is now exploring the inner world as opposed to the outer world. Out of all of this has arisen a uh, neurotic society, uh, a society that is suffering from all kinds of uh, psychoses. We now have a psychological society where we've got diminished responsibility. Uh, we've got the philosophy of personal impotence, uh, the idea of victimization. We are now blaming uh, Every form, every Tom, Dick, and Harry, we blame it. And part of that has happened because these Eastern cultic groups that have come in have told us to turn inside, and we become inward, and so we become a psychotic society. And then the last thing I would like to say that has led to the growth of the cults is the moral rebellion in the West. Uh, no one could question that beneath all these sociological and psychological problems, we are in a modern world of depravity where morality has been given a blow. Uh, Pornography, vulgar music, sexual perversion of every sort, uh, the rejection of moral absolutes, the emergence of situation ethics, and then this subjective relativism, that I decide what is right for me, has led to people rejecting uh, the Christianity of the West and embracing these Eastern gurus who have come over to the West are now offering a, a different way of life, a different way of thinking, and that has proved attractive to uh, Westerners who have now turned away from this um, Christianity that hardly resembles what the Bible teaches. They're now looking for something that the cults are offering. They're looking for something that is stable and absolute, looking for leaders that are strong and charismatic. So we're losing, but we need to fight back.
1: Thank you very much, Pastor Murphy. And we have now come to the end of our program for tonight. It was a pleasure having you joining us here on that Truth. Thanks to those who have sent in the WhatsApp with their question. We do appreciate you doing so. So from that Truth, good night and do have a blessed evening.
0: Thank you for joining us for today's program. We pray that the Holy Spirit uses the truths shared from God's word to strengthen your faith. Now you've heard it. That's truth.